Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for joining us for today's show. Um, You know, I've said on Political Rewind at any number of occasions that um, we knew there were going to be many, many polls coming out as we got closer and closer to Election Day in Georgia, and that for the most part, uh, we didn't want to spend a lot of time uh, going over the results of each one as it came along, but that we always want to look at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution polls, since they're right here in this state with us. Um, And we're going to do that today, because there's a brand new AJC poll that we'll uh, talk about. And uh, as we do that, we're also going to put into context that poll with a couple of other polls from respected polling organizations, Quinnipiac and Marist. So get ready. We're going to talk a little bit about polls as we start the show today, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what the panel has to say about the results that we're seeing. We start today, of course, with Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, it's good to have you here, and at some point today we will, as we quite often do, ask you to update us on what's going on with the special grand jury in Fulton County, but welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Always good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Adam Van Brimmer, who is a columnist now, used to be the editorial page editor, but uh, Adam's turning his attention to writing opinion pieces for the Savannah Morning News. Adam, that must be a really lovely feeling to free up and be able to give your opinion in the pages of Savannah Morning News and online. Yes, it's certainly an interesting way to make a living, to say the least. Um, we're gonna get. We're gonna. We're having some kind of really bad uh, noise on the line. I'm not sure where it's coming from, but we will fix it very uh, quickly. In the meantime, we'll introduce Chuck Williams, uh, the uh, reporter for WRBL TV in Savannah, longtime journalist in Columbus, Georgia, and somebody who's followed sports and politics for literally decades down there. And Chuck, Chuck, we always love hearing your perspective on the news, given your history in the state. Well, thanks, Bill. I appreciate that. And greetings from Columbus, Georgia, where it's going to be really hot today. We had a fake yeah. call. Yeah. It'll, don't worry. It's coming. It's coming. And <laughs> Professor Andra Gillespie is back with us. You know Andra. She's a professor of political science at Emory University and also the director of the James Weldon Johnson yeah. Institute for the study of race and difference at Emory. Andre, do you have any uh, programs for the Institute coming up that uh, people might be at least interested in knowing about? Well, we run a, a weekly colloquium series on Mondays. Um, so you can check our website out at jwji.emory.edu. So we have different speakers coming from universities around the country talking about all kinds of great topics. Um, I will direct you to the website later this week, our talk 
uh, from Monday will be posted, and it's from Dr. Robin Morris of Agnes Scott College, and she gave a great talk yesterday um, on uh, a white women's Republican organizing here in Georgia. It was a fascinating talk, and so I hope that everybody can go check that talk out online. It'll be available oh. within the next couple of days, and so if you go to our website and then click on Colloquium Series and scroll down a little bit, we have the talks that are on our, our YouTube page. Oh, that does sound like it would be okay. I, I definitely want to listen uh, to that. Um, all right, let's get going. Uh, Tamar, um, so we have a new AJC poll. And um, let me just give the overall uh, picture of what it shows us. Um, the poll suggests that the one place, at least at this stage in the race, and we always take pains to say a poll is a snapshot of where things stand, now, not what is going to happen on election day. But the one place that the poll suggests Democrats have some real hope is in the U.S. Senate race, where uh, Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock are essentially neck and neck. But then, tomorrow, when you look down the ballot, things, according to this poll, look uh, pretty bleak for Democrats. Uh, Kemp holds a sizable lead over Abrams. You go down to the attorney general's race, and there Chris Carr holds about a 10-point lead uh, over Jen Jordan, and Brad Raffensperger holds basically a 20-point lead over B. Wynn. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what you saw when you looked at this poll. Bleak is a great word to describe how Democrats must be feeling uh, based on many of the, the different races in this poll. As you mentioned, a poll is a, a snapshot in time. It's, it's been a little bit since they were in the field. But still, I think Democrats were hoping for a big lift from some of these proposals um, that have been passed into law in Washington. Of course, the massive spending package on climate legislation, uh, helping curb health care costs, as well as President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Democrats were super proud that they were able to get these major accomplishments out the door, and they were hoping that that could really aid Democrats up and down the ballot. Um, but as you can see in this poll, President Joe Biden is still underwater in Georgia, um, and that is still impacting many um, of the candidates up and down the ballot. We see here that just 37% of Georgia voters approve of, of the president. And so that makes it awfully hard for a Stacey Abrams, a B. Wynn, a Jim Jordan in order to really, um, you know, kind of close these gaps here. Um, Chuck, uh, beyond just uh, uh, what, what the number that uh, Tamar just indicated, the Biden approval rating, uh, when asked about whether the country, the state rather, was on the right track or the wrong track, 70% of the people who responded said that Georgia is on the wrong track, Chuck. That's troubling uh, uh, as well. Um, although, uh, oh, you know what? I apologize. I'm going to step, take a step back. In fact, the question is, is the country on the right or the wrong track? And that makes a significant difference, and I, and I apologize for in how we talk about it. So 70% said the country is on the wrong track. And, Chuck, that does create more problems, perhaps, for Democrats. I think it does. And my guess is those 70% have been in a grocery store lately. Groceries are where we're just seeing really high prices. But, I mean, whoa, uh, grocery stores are where we're seeing really high prices. And I think it's what's hurting Democrats. I don't think there's any question that 
the inflation numbers, but particularly grocery prices, as the gas prices have began to begun to decline all have been declining all summer. But grocery prices are the core part of this. Bill would be my guess. Andra, one of the figures that we've looked at in the AJC polls prior to this one has to do with Abrams' support among black voters. And once again in this poll, the, uh, uh, the crosstabs show that uh, only 80% of African Americans who were polled on this say they support her. That means those numbers haven't moved at all since the last poll from the AJC. What do you make of that number? Um, I mean, I think some of this, I think her equilibrium is going to end up working out in the end that she's going to get 90 percent of the voters, roughly, um, who uh, of, of black voters who turn out to vote for her. There's still one, you know, a small subset of voters who um, are KG kind of want to keep their options open, think about things and are going to say that they don't know. And so there may be some coyness there. I think ultimately what the bigger issue is, is not whether or not she's going to get the overwhelming majority of the black vote, but what turnout's going to look like amongst African-American voters and other Democratic-leaning demographics. So I think where we are now is just a sort of the reality that Democrats are approaching parity in numbers, but they have to have an exceptional turnout strategy in order to best Republicans. They're still the underdogs here, which means they're going to have to work harder to be able to win. Andra, the conventional wisdom in Georgia is that a candidate, a black candidate, really needs about 90 percent of the black vote to win an election. Do you believe that number is basically correct? Yeah, I mean, and that's based on sort of just prior voting history from the dozens of races that uh, we've seen um, black voters participate in, you know, since the mid-1960s. So that 90 percent, give or take a few, is axiomatic. And, you know, with nearly 10 percent of black voters reporting that they're undecided, Abrams is within target distance of actually being able to achieve that. So I'm not surprised by these numbers at all. And and the uh, a similar equation is uh, that uh, about 30 percent of the white vote for a Democrat and African-American Democrat or really for a Democrat to win statewide. And um, so we're going to watch very closely uh, how that uh, plays out. Uh, in in this race. Um, Adam, uh, let's talk a little bit about the down-ballot races. I didn't mention the lieutenant governor's race, was also, which is also part of this poll. Um, and in that race, Burt Jones, uh, according to the AJC polling, is leading Charlie Bailey by about eight points plus. Um, and this, even at a time when Burt Jones has been under a microscope because he, of his involvement as a fake elector for uh, Donald Trump, that certainly doesn't seem to have uh, put people off in terms of supporting him, at least not Republicans. There's no such thing as bad PR, right, Bill? Uh, this might be one of those cases. Is uh, Lieutenant Governor is a is a it's a high it's near the top of the ticket, but I wouldn't call it a high profile race. And name recognition calls uh, counts for something. And Charlie Bailey is losing that name recognition fight. And as you alluded to, this election, when, when we get to election day, is going to be about which tribe are you in or which ideology are you in, however you want to state it. And uh, the Republicans are going to support uh, are going to support Burt Jones, and Democrats are going to support Charlie Bailey. And at least it appears at this point that the Republican electorate is more engaged 
which is really what this election is going to come down to in the end, right, is, is which party can can engage its uh, its voters and its base more or, or better. And that's kind of, I think, what's happening down ballot and, and why you see so many Republicans uh, winning or leading in the polls. Well, I, now I do want to say, Tamar, I, I, I hear what Adam is saying about engagement, but I think Andrew made the point, too, that, in fact, Per, this is how people are responding to the phone call, which says, who do you support? Stacey Abrams, Brian Kemp, uh, Warnock, Walker, whatever. That's not quite the same as saying, are you getting out to the polls and actually casting a ballot in these races? Yeah, fair enough. No, no I mean, they, they, they screen on likelihood to vote. So, I mean, we're now at the stage where these polls are likely voters or people who say that they're definitely or very likely to turn out to vote and not just registered voters. So, um, you know, we're getting sort of to a truer sort of group of people who are, are likely to vote. This ends up kind of, you know, falling by the wayside of people who said that they're likely to vote end up not voting. But like they're screening to try to make sure that they are doing their due diligence to get the, the, the group of people who is much more likely to vote than those who can but probably won't. Well, I thank you for that because I didn't see that that screen. Um, uh, but but of course that makes perfect sense. So tomorrow, Andre's saying that I'm wrong if I suggest that this doesn't reflect the likelihood of how people of people turning out and voting for the candidate they've told pollsters they're going to tomorrow. I mean, it's also very possible. I, I know this is something that came up in 2016 where folks ended up voting for Donald Trump even though in a poll they. They weren't likely to admit that. And I mean, sure, there are some people who say they're likely to vote and, and won't turn out to vote. But I agree with Andra. Like most of these people are likely to vote. But there's one number in here, Bill, you kind of mentioned the right track versus wrong track nationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, 70 um, percent of voters in Georgia believe we're on the wrong track nationally. But a number that kind of struck me is, is when you look in reference to Georgia, are we on the right track mm-hmm. or the wrong track? Um, and still, it's not a majority who say we're on the right track. It's about 39%, but that's still double the amount of people who think, um, you know, that, that we're going on the right track nationally. And I think that's good news for somebody like Governor Kemp, who represents the status quo and has a four-year record to, to run on. Um, it shows that, that maybe not as many people are, are willing to dump incumbents as they might be on the, the national level. Um. Chuck, I'm curious about, uh, in terms of looking at the trending in this poll, which suggests that uh, the Georgians who were surveyed tend to be more Republican-leaning than Democratic-leaning, there's another question in here I was interested in. If the election were today, would you want to see the Republican Party or the Democratic Party win control of the U.S. Congress? Um, Republicans' uh, uh, response on that, the response from was 51% said they'd prefer Republicans to 43% uh, who say they prefer Democrats. So add that to this mix about this sense that people in the state are more, you know, leaning more toward Republicans than Democrats. And what does that say to you about the purpling of Georgia right now? We're definitely in a purple state. There's, I, I mean, I, I'm convinced we're a purple state. But, you know, to what you were talking about, sort of going back to what Adam talked about with the down ballot races, and it plays into your question here, Bill, is I'm, I interviewed Chris Carr last week. I'm working on a story on the uh, attorney general's race, and hopefully it'll go in the next couple of days. 
But I specifically asked the Attorney General how the governor's race and the U.S. Senate race were going to impact his race. I mean, he was arm in arm with Kemp. I mean, it was like, I'm proud. I mean, I've been with Governor Kemp forever. I'm proud to go. And then when he got to the Senate race, he said, it is a unique race when I want to make sure I've got his words right, with two strong candidates. And I, I kind of sort of stood back and said, okay, that's interesting. He said he thought that the Republican would win because of Republican momentum, the same momentum you're seeing in this poll right now. But I thought it was interesting that a down-ballot guy who who is impacted by – he clearly – Said he's impacted by the Warnock-Walker race. He's impacted by the Kemp Abrams race. But he, you know, he it was all sunshine and roses when he was talking about Kemp. But then it was unique. It's a unique race. I found that to be fascinating coming from somebody who is a Republican who with a what about ten point lead according to this poll um, in the in a down ballot race. Well, Adam, there's, an, uh, of course, an interesting aspect of that, and, and this poll shows what others have. Warnock is outperforming Abrams by a considerable uh, margin. Um, but what Chuck's talking about in terms of what Chris Carr said about Warnock has also been said by any number of Republicans on Capitol Hill. They have been very careful in most cases to be respectful of Raphael Warnock um, to say he's a wonderful person, a great preacher. We've had any number of Republican senators talk about him in very positive terms, uh, then go on to say that they'd rather see the Republican win the race. And I find that an interesting phenomenon, and I'd love to get your take on that and, and yours as well, Andra. I mean, they're, they're trying to not look racist. I mean, you know, especially after the Kelly Leffler um, Raphael Warnock is the second coming of Jeremiah Wright fiasco of 2020, mm-hmm. right? They want to make sure that they are distancing this from them. And so it's setting this up. He's a nice person, but ignore me when I try to go for the jugular on this. And so they are, are looking to try to come up with a way to attack him that cannot be construed as being racialized. I think the other thing they're doing here is they're hedging. Um, and so, you know, by calling this a unique race, what they uh, don't want to do is be disloyal and say that they realize that Herschel Walker has some weaknesses in the in the race, weaknesses that could prove to be fatal. However, if it turns out that Walker does lose, right, that the Republicans can't carry him on their coattails um, to victory, then they will explain that away by saying unique publicly, but saying he was a weak candidate and we knew it all along uh, privately. Adam? Yeah, call me cynical here, but I just think this is in Washington. This is this is what you do. I mean, Warnock has shown a propensity so far in his tenure there to to be to act bipartisan and and to court folks from across the aisle. I mean, he did he did some legislation with with Ted Cruz, right? And so the the Republicans, even though they see somebody they can work with here, they are expected to put their party first. So therefore, Raphael Warnock has a D next to his name. So therefore, he's he's not who they want there. Uh, at the same time, right. though, by by being kind of you know polite about it, if Warnock wins, then I'm sure they're thinking you know we can we can still work with him. So we don't want to we don't want to drag him through the mud too bad. 
Before we leave the whole uh, question of polling uh, uh, today, I do want to point out two other very recent polls of Georgia races, just to put all this in context. As I, I've said, tomorrow, I like using the AJC poll because it comes from the University of Georgia. They know the state well uh, in, in Georgia, whereas some of the outside polling organizations may not have quite the same understanding of the dynamics uh, here, although they are certainly good pollsters. Quinnipiac has an A rating from 538, an A- rating. Marist has an A rating uh, for their polling at, by uh, according to 538. So let me just say this, Tamar. In the Quinnipiac poll uh, that was taken last, that was released last week, Warnock is up over Walker 52 to 46%. And that same Quinnipiac poll showed the governor's race as too close to call. Different samples, different universes, different ways of weighting uh, the voters. Uh, but I think it's important to point out that Quinnipiac has a somewhat different uh, sense of both the U.S. Senate race and the governor's race, which must give a little hope to the Democrats. You know, I love looking at Real Clear Politics website. They they kind of aggregate a bunch of different polls uh, across many you know, uh, sorry, for a single race, they aggregate several different polls. So you kind of get a sense of, of how Marist, the AJC, Quinnipiac, Fox 5, how all of them are reading these different races. So it's kind of, you can see the spread. As you mentioned, the, Quinnip the Quinnipiac poll had Kemp up only by two points, but then a Marist poll had Kemp up by 11 points. So it goes to show just how variable some of these polls can be. But taken together, you can get a better sense, you know, okay, Kemp seems to have a, an advantage here. Um, it's not the biggest advantage, but it's certainly an advantage. Um, things could change very much between now and uh, when voters start going to the polls. But um, it, it is worth taking all of these polls and kind of taking a step back and seeing the trends here. Andra, you are the you're the data cruncher on our show today. You're the one who really examines these very closely. What do you make of the differences in among the polls? Um, I mean, especially in the gubernatorial race, there really aren't any differences. And so one of the things that, you know, we pay attention to is what the trend looks like. And of the recent polls that have been done in the last month um, here in the state of Georgia, all of them point in the direction of a Kemp lead. Um, there, many of them are within the margin of error. So this is still a close race. Um, I think that that actually portends what's going to happen in the future, um, especially in terms of what, what the overall margin is going to be between Kemp and Abrams. This is going to be a close race. Um, this race is statistically likely going to show up in most polls as being too close to call unless Governor Kemp pulls out a far and away lead. Um, and so the average kind of, I mean, even when these averages look pretty robust, like Kemp has a six or seven point lead, if the confidence interval is plus or minus uh, you know, four, um, then that's still a tie. And so unfortunately, we just have to understand the limitations of polling data. Nobody can afford to do uh, surveys with sample sizes of five and 10,000 where you can get that margin kind of, you know, at or below 1%. So we're going to have to suffice with kind of understanding that the range of sort of possible answers here is going to be pretty big. And it's going to be really hard to detect that. But the, I take the trend seriously. Um, and so the trend seriously sort of suggests that these pollsters aren't doing anything uh, that's wrong or that suggests it. And I think particularly with the Warnock and Walker race, like the fact that those margins are even closer suggests that this still is going to be a, a close race. 
Um, they, you know, the results are more sanguine for, for Senator Warnock. Um, but I think what Democrats need to look at this as is that they've got to get every one of their voters out to vote. Otherwise, they risk losing every possible seat um, that's up for consideration in this election. All right. Um, I got to get to a uh, break. Uh, thank you for the conversation about the polls. I will say once again what I've said before. We don't want to spend a lot of time day after day talking about whatever late poll has suddenly been uh, released about Georgia races. But of course, uh, when it becomes something we really want to talk about, need to talk about, uh, to give you a sense of the trend, as Andra points out, of where these elections are headed, we will do that. You're listening to Political Rewind. Back in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, before we get back to the panel, I, uh, just a couple of comments. Um, you, I think if you listen to the show regularly, you know that it means a lot to me to correct uh, observations that are made on the show that turn out to be uh, uh, potentially inaccurate. Um, and I want to do that just for a moment uh, today. On, on Friday's show, uh, w- there was a conversation about uh, political consultants, the fees they make. Um, it focused primarily on the firm that is working for Democrat Mark, Mar, uh, Marcus Flowers up in the 14th district. Um, they're buying uh, Facebook ads uh, f- and for, to do fundraising for Marcus Flowers. They've raised more than $10 million, which, which is pretty exceptional. But in the course of that conversation, one of our panelists uh, essentially suggested that the amount of money that this firm was, in fact, spending on Facebook ads was relatively small compared to the amount of the commissions that they were making, uh, suggesting perhaps that uh, they were making a lot more money than they were putting back into uh, the campaign. Uh, We didn't talk about the name of the firm. I'm not going to do it again today. But I do think the fact that, uh, you know, sometimes you can get the wrong impression of consultants who are often doing very good work for their candidates. So the principals in this firm uh, contacted me. They said uh, that this assumption was wrong, that in fact, number one, the commissions that they're making are far smaller than the numbers that were reported about how much of a commission firms usually uh, make, and that in fact, they've Uh, put a lot more money into the Facebook ads than uh, was talked about on the show. If all of that sounds a little confusing to you, the bottom line is simply this. Uh, If we made a mistake in the ratio between the amount of money that the firm was making in commissions compared to the amount of money they were putting into the ads on Facebook to raise money uh, for that, uh, we do apologize. All right, let's get back to the panel. Tamar Hallerman is with us, Chuck Williams, Adam Van Brimmer, Andre Gillespie uh, also. Tamar, give us a quick update on the uh, special grand jury. Uh, one of the big questions that you wrote about is 
are they going to call Donald Trump? But there's other news out of the grand jury as well. Yeah, it's been a, a little slower, this news cycle out of the grand jury these past couple of weeks. But last week, we did find out one tidbit, and that is that former federal, federal prosecutor Bobby Christine, um, who was brought in to replace B.J. Pack as the, the top U.S. attorney in Atlanta after Trump essentially kind of pushed him out, um, that, that he has been subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury. That isn't exactly a surprise. We've known for a long time that the grand jury was really interested in the tumult in the U.S. attorney's office. They actually subpoenaed the AJC, which was a little eerie for me to write about. Uh, we've gotten a leaked conference call after Bobby Christine had started there where he kind of explained to his colleagues the work he'd been doing so far and kind of reassuring him about his role. But obviously, this is just one of many instances that this grand jury is looking into to see if there was any criminal election interference in Georgia in the 2020 election. Well, so what's the calculation about calling uh, Donald Trump? Sure. I mean, first of all, you know, there, there's on the one hand, you kind of want, if you're, if you're a prosecutor, you probably want to fight off anything where, say, they decide not to call him. And then Trump said, hey, I had a perfectly reasonable explanation for what I did, and you never called to ask my side of the story. And there was a very obvious answer. That would look really bad for the investigation. So that kind of is, is in the column of calling him. You know, he's a former president. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Give him the chance to come in and explain himself. On the other side, you have Donald Trump, who is a notorious a street fighter in the courtroom who is known to kind of fight everything and to draw everything out as long as possible. Um, he fought, of course, his subpoena that he got as part of the New York Attorney General's investigation. Uh, he did. He was eventually compelled to come in and he cited his Fifth Amendment rights not to self-incriminate himself 440 times. He didn't say anything other than confirm his name. So there really is a question, especially as they are on this very tight timeline, how useful is it to bring him in? What new information is he really going to give that he hasn't said already? Um, and especially since she, you know, the, the district attorney has to worry about Donald Trump potentially running for president once again. Is that really worth all the trouble? Yeah. Um, Adam, uh, uh, Trump, it turns out, uh, trashed Fannie Willis uh, during a rally uh, in another state uh, just the other day. And and it was up. It was it was more than that. He trashed her. He made references to her that were particularly demeaning. Um, he said that she ought to be spending all of her waking hours, and then said, "Which are not very many, pers uh, pursuing criminals, uh, not people like me." Crime in Fulton County is up. He said the phone call that he made to Brad Raffensperger, much like the phone call he made to Volodymyr Zelensky, was a perfect call, um, and uh, that uh, the whole investigation was absurd. Uh, not surprising uh, for the way Donald Trump treats situations like this, Adam. Yeah, the insults are his modus operandi, correct? That's, whether it's to Joe Biden or, or folks in the media or or anybody. I mean, this is this is somebody who at a political rally made fun of somebody with a with a physical disability. And he just he doesn't have any kind of boundaries. And he's going to come out and and act the way he acts. And quite frankly, it's it's gone unchecked by a large portion of the population. So it's going to continue. And it's just something you're going to have to deal with. And 
uh, Fonnie Willis and, and these other investigations that are going on, whether it's the FBI or the Justice Department or, or the U.S. House Subcommittee, uh, they need to stick to their work and stick to stick to what is what is relevant and not get caught up in the circus and the distraction that comes with with Donald Trump. And if there is evidence or or other things that they implicate Donald Trump, then they need to to follow it to its conclusion. But they also need to understand that he is going to do everything he can to try to distract, to drive the American people to the point of distraction at every opportunity he can. Chuck? You know, the the grand jury investigation in politics are going to collide. And I, I saw Bluestein's report this morning where the where Pres- former President Trump was considering a rally in right after the Warnock-Walker uh, debate in Savannah on the 14th. He's looking at some possible dates on the 15th. You know, think about the ramifications of that. And, you know, you know, I mean, Kemp is starting to build momentum. Does he want the former president who has not been his strongest supporter on a stage in Georgia the weekend before advanced voting starts in the state? That you know, does Walker, who is in a tight race, want the former president on a stage? And who's on that stage with him? I think it's just Greg's report this morning was fascinating to me, and we all knew, we all know it's coming. We all know something. He's going to insert himself into these high-profile Georgia races. Um, Andre, I'd love you to weigh in on this, but I'd also love you to respond, in addition to whatever else you have to say about this, to this this notion that she isn't awake many hours. I mean, that's a racially tinged remark, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, it is, right? So, uh, you know, he's basically implying that she's lazy and that she should be spending her time policing presumably black people in Fulton County who were committing real crimes, right? Because he can't possibly be committing real crimes here. Um, And, uh, you know, that's the part that's offensive and it's targeted to uh, keeping up a base of support of people who he knows he can get angry by tapping into their uh, overt, but also their latent racial resentment. And that's really sad. I mean, I think also, you know, one of the issues is, is, you know, it's Bonnie Willis going after him in, um, you know, in Georgia. It's Letitia James, another black woman, the attorney general of New York, who is going after him um, on the business side of his financial dealings. And so he's just evidencing a certain resentment of black women holding him accountable um, for, you know, following the law like everybody is supposed to do, regardless of station and what office you've held before. Um, and so to kind of tap into that to get his supporters um, upset so that they will they will continue to do his bidding is a low point. It's not the lowest point. It's not the only one, but like it certainly sort of reveals what Donald Trump is willing to do in order to hold on to power. Um, and so we should all uh, take caution at that. Um, in terms of Trump showing up in in Georgia, I mean, I expect him to. And I think the wild card here is what he says. If he's here, if it's a normal, if he makes it about himself, it's not helpful. Um, But in particular, if he does something to undermine Republicans in the state the way he did Kelly Loeffler and and David Perdue in 2021, then it's a problem. So I think the thing that everybody is afraid of, and you don't know just because he's undisciplined, is does he get up and start talking about rigged elections and so how you can't trust the, the election system and don't go vote, right? Because in a race this close, 
I mean, and even if Republicans win, they're not going to win by 10-point margins. They're probably not even going to win by 7-point margins. We're probably looking at this being in the 2 to 4 um, point range or even in the 1 to 4 point range, right? You're saying something that makes people not want to show up to vote is going to be problematic. Um, and so, and Donald Trump hasn't taken responsibility yet for his part in helping Leffler and Purdue lose those Senate runoff races as well. Well, I understand that. Yes. What would Donald Trump say on a rally stage here in Georgia makes a big, will, will be meaningful. But tomorrow, what is the calculation for Brian Kemp? Brian Kemp has done a really, really fine job being able to stay distant from Trump without ever attacking him. He absorbed all the blows he took from Trump throughout uh, last year, throughout the primary campaign when he was running against David Perdue and, and, you know, repeatedly uh, said, I'm running my own race, wouldn't get into the mix. So does Brian Kemp get up on a stage with Donald Trump, given that one of the reasons that he may be winning independent voters is people feel that he was able to stand strong against Trump. Yeah, it's a tricky calculation. I don't think I could see that happening. Um, And you're right, the governor has stayed very disciplined in this kind of tightrope walk approach where he's kind of forged his own path, but also declined to kind of get into it with the former president. And it's really paid off. I mean, looking at this latest AJC poll, uh, more than 92% of Republicans say they're going to back Brian Kemp. I don't think that's something we thought we were going to see this spring yeah. when David Perdue with uh, with President Trump's backing was was challenging him. So I don't see that happening. I don't see Brad Raffensperger, certainly not you know, standing on a stage with him and probably not Chris Carr either. So who goes to a Donald Trump event? Would it just be Herschel Walker and Burt Jones, his, his two endorsed candidates who did make it through? Um, and especially now that they're trying to win over kind of moderates and independents, even that could be a tricky calculation for them. And just as Professor Gillespie mentioned, you don't want to have a situation like what happened the day before the runoff in, in 2021, uh, when basically it was a festival of grievances where uh, the president just you know complained about what happened in November 2020. And it truly did dampen turnout in places like North Georgia and Leffler and Purdue lost. Well, let me, uh, Adam, let me point out that um, it, that Donald Trump is not waiting for invitations from people, Republicans here in Georgia, as he has it in other states. It turns out we learned last week that he's showing up on his own, Ohio uh, and other states, where he's just decided without uh, talking to the Republican candidates, he wants to go in there and, uh, and hold, hold rallies, Adam. That could very easily happen in Georgia as well. Yes. Well, he's the kingmaker, or at least he, he believes he is. And uh, the king is going to do what the king wants to do, regardless of, of any kind of logic. I think Andre pointed to, to Trump's activities here in Georgia before the Senate runoff, particularly up in, in northwest Georgia, where he basically told people that their vote didn't count, their vote didn't matter, and Republicans didn't turn out uh, in that part of Georgia and in two close Senate races the Democrats won. So that is certainly a danger again for the Republicans here in Georgia, especially as we get closer and closer to Election Day. I know that if I was, uh, and they're not asking for my advice, obviously, but if I were Kemp or Raffensperger or even Herschel Walker, I would um, encourage Mr. Trump to support me in ways that do not involve him basically sucking all the air out of the room. 
well, Chuck, Trump has been the kingmaker throughout the primary season, but of course, there's now a general election underway. And, and I want to, if you don't mind, Chuck, I'm going to ask you this question, and you, I'll frame it with this. You certainly can respond as you would like. Dan Bolduck, who is now the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in New Hampshire, having beaten a fairly moderate Republican up there, Bolduck being an extreme right-winger, an election denier, he went to Washington on January 6th, and he ran his whole primary campaign around the notion that, of course, the 2020 election was stolen. He won. Now he's in a general election. And last week, Dan Bolduck issued this statement. He said, you know, I've done a lot of studying of the election of 2020, the results. I've looked at, the, at that very closely, and I now realize it really wasn't stolen. <laughs> you know, so very conveniently, Bolduck uh, moves away from what got him the uh, primary win. You know, Bill, have you ever seen a general officer change, change his stance? Any, I mean, that's a general officer. It's the U.S. general officer who, who did that. But he clearly rode the horse he had to ride until that horse was no longer useful and he got on another horse. And that's one of the things you have to, and I've got to be careful I say this because I'm trying to sort of think it and say it, but you have to. One thing is you have to sort of admire about the line that Kemp has walked here. He has been incredibly disciplined in not attacking Trump, in not saying, you know, saying I did my job. He has been as disciplined through the primary. And one of the things in that interview with uh, Chris Carr that I did, he said, you know, Brian Kemp should have never been primary. He should have been praised. And I think when you look at what happened up in New Hampshire with their Republican nominee. I mean, Kemp has never gotten into that situation, he's, and he's tried to be as respectful as he can in a fight that he didn't choose. Andre, I'll close this out before I've got to get to our final break. Yeah, I mean, Brian Kemp, I expect, is going to try to play this more like Glenn Youngkin, so be Trumpian without really sort of having Trump around. Um, and, I mean, the thing that Dan Baldock is doing in New Hampshire is, I mean, it's a different environment, but he ran to the far right in order to win the nomination because that's where the votes were for the primary. And now he's trying to pivot back. But the question is, when the pivot is a 180 on an issue that's that important, is it a credible pivot? It's not like you're just kind of like, you know, shading things. You're actually like making a step. So I have to wait to see whether or not that's um, that, that that's even effective in this case. The science has typically has historically said that that is a is a is a hard move to make. But he's doing it because he's running against an incumbent, and this is going to be a close race. Well, I also think that the bulldog statement really shows us uh, that what what's the man behind the curtain. How many Republicans running as election deniers really believe that the election was stolen, uh, but have run that way because they can win uh, primaries on that basis? And Bulldog's statement just seems to me to um, make a point that most of these people may very well not believe uh, what they've been saying about it all. All right, we got to get to our final break of the show. Uh, back with more Adam Van Brimmer. I want to talk about what's going on down there with Hyundai and some potential problems as a result of the uh, uh, new law signed by uh, President Biden uh, just a couple weeks ago. We'll do that more in a moment.
Adam Van Brimmerer, uh, we know that one of the things that uh, Ryan Kemp can celebrate in terms of economic development is that uh, Hyundai coming into southeast Georgia, not far from Savannah, $5 billion investment in a plant that will uh, put probably 8,000 plus people to work. But here's the wrinkle now. Um, when President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, it has a, a provision about electric vehicles. And it, the act says that if, if a, a, you buy an electric vehicle uh, made in another country, you will not get the $7,500 tax credit that's available if you buy a, a vehicle produced here in the United States. And we don't know what Hyundai might do, but they have said they're a little concerned about this, and they may have to look at just whether they go out and do this full-blown um, uh, creation of this plant. What's your take on that, and how's it being uh, dealt with down there in Savannah? Adam, are you muted? We can't hear you. Sorry about that, Bill. Uh, I was saying that, that sure, there's a there's a couple of things going on around this whole project, and I'll try to tick them off one by one and be quick about it. First and foremost is the fact that last Thursday I was driving out I-16 on my way to Atlanta, and let's just say there is uh, very um, aggressive pipe preparations going on for this factory. I mean, there was there was earth moving equipment all over the place. They had cleared a humongous part of this track. They are moving they are moving fast and forward, which makes sense, as we've seen with, with the California law and with some of the other things that have been said around uh, the automobile industry is 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 EV is the future and we've embraced it and we're going forward. So companies like Hyundai are going to move as quickly as they can to try to go ahead and get production set up and get going. So the one thing that was interesting to me, the most interesting thing to me about the Hyundai and the whole idea of this may disrupt our plans, I think an official called it a five alarm fire in terms of, of the project here, is the whole idea that maybe the size of the factory could change. Um, I certainly do not anticipate, I don't think anybody around here anticipates the Hyundai factory going away. Now, there's a natural uh, hesitation around here just because we flirted with automakers literally for 20 years, whether it was Volvo or Mercedes-Benz or Sprinter or Land Rover. We, you know, we had, we were in serious discussions, or our economic, economic development officials were in serious discussions with all of these automakers and they all fell through. So now that we've landed one, when something like this pops up, everybody goes, oh, oh, geez, what, are we going to lose this one? I think the general feeling is that we're not going to lose this one. And the fact that once they start making models here in the U.S., those models will qualify for that, for that credit, make a difference. And as we've also seen, there is a push uh, led, I believe, by Senator Warnock to go ahead and, and get that, that little piece of the legislation either changed or updated or something that, that maybe uh, softens that or, or gives gives the credit to to more automakers that maybe have a presence in the U.S. Yeah. See, see, Chuck, what what that makes sense to me, because it strikes me that, yeah, Honda is not going to cancel their plans. But this does seem to me, I mean, I'm, I'm always said I'd never be a good political consultant. But if I were a Republican candidate, I, I'd probably want to call out the Biden administration for creating this potential problem that could lead to, you know, a downsizing of a plant that was going to put 8,000 Georgians 
uh, to work. Um, I don't know to what extent it might enter the political debate. Maybe it could down there on the coast. What, what do you? What's your take on that? I'm wondering right now if Cody Hall is listening to you, Bill. Um, you know, it's <laughs> um, Cody is a uh, comp guy for Governor Kemp. But, you know, I mean, anything that the Republicans can use to bring Biden into the picture in this George, in these Georgia elections, they're going to do it. And, you know, this could be one of those, you know, one of those issues. We'll see. It's something, it's something you're already seeing. Letters being sent from the Republican members of the congressional delegation uh, kind of criticizing this move. And, you know, Adam is absolutely right. After years and years of flirting and talking with all sorts of automakers, this is a hard-fought victory uh, for Georgia. And so Republicans will not be forgetting this anytime soon. But the conundrum here is that Biden was and, and Democrats were trying to triangulate, right? You want to buy American, you want to produce in the United States. So that's the populist sort of appeal. So there's a response to that. And I think because of partisanship, it's going to be hard for people to concede that these things are messy and that they're externalities to each of these decisions. But the motivation behind doing this was an idea of creating jobs in America and to try to bring production back to the U.S. so that you're not sort of caught in supply chain problems like the ones we've had for the last couple of years. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It'll be fascinating to watch how that plays out. Um, by the way, uh, Chuck, since you mentioned it, I good chance for me to promote tomorrow's show. Uh, many people who were listening to us last Thursday heard our conversation with Lauren Grow Wargo, Stacey Abrams, political campaign manager. We uh, gave uh, Lauren a chance, uh, it, you know, with some questions, certainly. We wanted it to uh, get to the bottom of some of the things she had to say, but we wanted to give her an opportunity to talk about how she sees this campaign playing out in the final weeks before the election. And we said on that show, we were going to give the same opportunity to a high ranking official at the Kemp campaign. Cody Hall is going to be on our show tomorrow, having the same opportunity that Lauren did a week ago. Greg Bluestein and I will talk to him about where he sees the, Trump, uh, the Kemp campaign today, uh, some of the issues that they may face going forward. It'll be fascinating to ask him about the notion of whether what happens if Donald Trump, Trump holds a rally here in the state. So that I thank you, Chuck, for giving me a chance uh, to mention that. One more quick thing. We're almost out of time. But we now know, Tamar, that uh, DOJ has turned to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which, of course, is right here in Atlanta, to uh, get a uh, to, to ask that the court uh, allow them to look at 100 documents that are marked as classified without regard to this special master that has been appointed by uh, Judge Aileen Cannon down there in Florida. That's going to be a fascinating uh, case to watch unfold. And there's a hope that the 11th Circuit will act quickly. It's a Trump-dominated uh, court, Jamar. Yeah, six of the 11 judges on this court were appointed by Trump, notoriously conservative at the same time, because this ruling from Judge Cannon uh, took a lot of people by surprise, even conservatives, it's possible they could rule differently. All right. I wish we had more time to talk about this, and we will on another edition of Political Rewind. In the meantime, Adam Van Brimmer, Chuck Williams, um, Andra Gillespie, and Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much 
for being with us for the show today. We're out of time. Back again tomorrow. We'll hear from the Kemp campaign, and Greg Bluestein and I will have more about the political scene today. See you all tomorrow. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye.